Please turn in your copy of God's Word once again to Luke's Gospel as we continue to work our way through Luke together and to the sixth chapter, chapter six of Luke's Gospel. Let us pray together. Our Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word, and we ask that as we hear your word, that we will hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest, that we by faith will receive your word that we will not desire to think in some sinful, autonomous way about anything in life, but that we will submit ourselves completely and utterly as your people to what you teach in your word. Come what may, no matter what opposition arises on account of it. And Father, though the whole world were to reject your word, We pray that this congregation will stand fast, and we ask that those who may be here today who do not know Christ Jesus as Lord, that you would draw out of sin and darkness into a saving and personal relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord, for only you can do this. And may we never have a service of worship in which someone does not come to know the Savior and in which your people are not drawn more deeply into the truths of the gospel. These things we pray in the name of Christ, the head and king of the church. Amen. Take your copy, please, and let's stand as we read the word together. Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. This is the word of God. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And now the woe, the corresponding woe, verse 26 Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as we continue on this portion of Luke's gospel, which is a short version of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see this beatitude, this blessing that is pronounced upon God's people this morning, If you're reading it as if you've read it perhaps for the first time, you're astounded. Perhaps our ears are so accustomed to it that we have failed to be astounded this morning, but really we should be thoroughly astounded. This is not a common view of what it means to be a Christian, is it? That we are blessed when we are hated and excluded and reviled and spurned on account of the Son of Man? 
Indeed, what we are taught, or many are taught in churches today is, if you're a Christian, all should go well. If you're not blessed in every realm of life in tangible ways, then it's because you lack faith. The problem is with you, and you can expect, if you have appropriate faith, to gain in all sorts of ways in this world, materially and otherwise. It's the abundant life, we are told. Well, what did that bring the Apostle Paul? And what does that view of the abundant life bring to believers in Fallujah this morning? Luke puts this right after the beatitude, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. And now he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So let's first of all think about this. The way of the godly is the way of persecution. The way of the godly, the life of the godly, will be a life in which the godly are persecuted. Let's look at a couple of passages in addition to this one this morning. Turning your Bibles to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 15. John 15 beginning in verse 18. This is what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Or turning to an epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you'll turn there. As Paul the apostle instructs his young protege, Timothy, He says to him, I'll begin reading in chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, this is 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the scriptures say. Matthew says that we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake and on my account. Luke says, on account of the Son of Man. But the point is simply this. Loyalty to Christ arouses the consciences of sinners. Why do men hate Jesus? Because he is the sinless son of God, because of his absolute purity. Why do they hate Christians? Why does the world hate the church? They hate when the church reflects the purity of the son of God and commitment to his teaching and his word, his atonement, and his resurrection. We do not give enough attention to the biblical doctrine of the total depravity of man. That outside of Christ, all of us are God-haters. We may love our own idea of God, 
But the scriptures are very plain that outside of Christ, we hate the God who is. It may be demonstrated by a simple sneer, or perhaps by a family that ostracizes you for your faith in Jesus, or because of a loss of job because of your faith in Christ, or even serious physical persecution, or perhaps even death. But the church of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, speaking to his people, said, the way to heaven is by way of thorns and blood. And then he called upon his people, put the cross into your creed. And so if the cross, living under the cross, living under persecution, living with trials and tribulations is not your picture of the Christian life, then you need to put the cross in your creed. And this is consistently true of the people of God. Turn again to another passage, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. As Paul was stoned at Lystra, in verse 21, picking up Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And didn't Martin Luther say that if you executed a painting of the church, that it would be that of a maiden in the wilderness surrounded by devouring wild beasts? And have you noticed in verse 22 this? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. The world actually will, in its pompous morality, look at the Christian and say, you are the evil one. You are the ones who are wicked. The church will be considered evil by the world. And as our culture less and less is influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ, Surely we are living in a day in which we can see what Isaiah says in the fifth chapter of his prophecy to be true of our culture. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You are the ones who are the light, but will be called the darkness by the world. You are the ones who are the sweet savor of Christ in the world, but you will be called the bitter ones. You are the ones who exemplify the goodness of Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, and yet you will be called evil. Well, secondly, what types of persecution should the church expect? Should we Christians expect? Well, physical persecution and all that comes with it. When we are told in verse 23, for so their fathers did to the prophets, the church can expect to be done to us what was done to the prophets long ago. And all one needs to do is read the Old Testament and see what what treatment was given to the prophets. Isaiah purportedly was sawn asunder. Moving on to the apostles, Peter the apostle would be crucified upside down. In Domitian's reign, Christians would be imprisoned, put on the rack, 
seared with hot irons, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, hung, lacerated with hot pinchers, thrown upon horns of wild bulls. And our Savior hid not his face from shame and spitting. Sometimes it will be physical. But sometimes also the persecution that we will face will be verbal and emotionally stressful. Reading again verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Indeed, verse 22 does not focus upon those things that relate to physical persecution, but focuses upon the persecution that comes to us by way of being hated and excluded and reviled and spurned and called evil, verbal and emotional. That was true of the early church as well. The early church was accused of atheism because it refused to worship the gods of the Roman pantheon. Accused of immorality because when the church talked of brothers and sisters, it was misunderstood and uh, it was thought that the early church was guilty of incest. The early church was accused of cannibalism because of the misunderstanding of what it meant to feast on the body and blood of Christ. And the early church was accused of being unpatriotic unpatriotic because it said Christ is king. Total misunderstanding, complete misunderstanding of what the church meant by these things. And so today, a family may ostracize a member for being a believer. A spouse may be cruel in how he speaks a man to his wife or a wife to her husband. By the way, let that not be true in our congregation, that we who name the name of Christ would so persecute one in our household. If that is the case, then repent. Hebrews 11.36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Psalm 35.11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. In other words, they are accusing me things of which I have no knowledge and am not guilty. And surely every faithful minister of the gospel, and I say this especially for the sake of Adam, quite frankly, our intern, but we all need to hear it. Every faithful minister of the gospel knows what it is to have his motives misunderstood and to have whispering campaigns behind his back at some point in his ministry. Those of you who know the ministry of J. Gresham Machen will know what serious mirror campaign went on behind his back, fierce and perverse, so that some of those false accusations remain in some circles even to this day. Well, what is to be, thirdly, the attitude of the Christian in persecution? Well, we do not retaliate. Romans twelve fourteen, the Apostle Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. We do not retaliate. The right manner of growth in grace is to grow low in our own eyes. And so when we see those who persecute us, we love them because they are blind and dead in trespasses and sins. And they do not understand what they are doing. They're responsible for what they do. But what they do, they do out of spiritual blindness. And we pity them. And it requires trust in God to make things right in his own time when he determines it is right to demonstrate his justice, either in this world 
or certainly in the next. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me remind you that in 1 Peter, the persecution that is being spoken of, for the book is really about the persecuted church, is the persecution that was sometime around the Neronian persecution. And he especially indicates in this section that there were slaves who would be persecuted for their faith. That would have no possibility of escaping from their setting or situation in their lifetime. And this is how in 1 Peter 2, verse 18 and following, Peter, by divine inspiration, tells them and through them tells us how we are to endure persecution. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. He doesn't say it's your fate. He says it's your calling. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, that is Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Rather than retaliate, we are called to live knowing that the time will come in which our just God will take care of it all. And when we live that way, we are showing to the world we really do believe what we profess and in whom the one that we point to the world that they also are called to believe. But the attitude and persecution that is underscored in this passage is a very surprising one, isn't it? The attitude to which you are called as a Christian and the church is called in persecution to exemplify is joy. That's what Jesus says in verse 23. Rejoice in that day. What day? When people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven so that their fathers so, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now the verbs here, rejoice and leap for joy, are imperatives, they're commands. Why? Why do we rejoice when we are persecuted? Let me give you these reasons. Because we suffer for Christ, we rejoice. Verse 22, on account of the Son of Man. We should not rejoice if we suffer because we are stupid because we bring it on ourselves, because we do, not, we do not show love and do not show grace. 
But when we are genuinely persecuted for the cause of Christ and the sake of his name, then we should rejoice. Men will suffer eternally for sin, but we know the Lord. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 and 13, in which Peter, by divine inspiration, says, 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, Peter undoubtedly reflecting this beatitude, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Maybe it's important that we read on. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed. Again, he's reflecting this beatitude. Peter was there. He heard it. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12:10, for the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness and salts, hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak then I am strong. So we rejoice because we are suffering for the name of Christ. We also rejoice because of what Christ did for us. When he came and obeyed the law that we broke and went to a cross and suffered in our place upon the cross, as Calvin put it, Christ's whole life was a series of sufferings. And we also rejoice because when we suffer for his name and we do so in faith and we do so in a way that brings glory to him, we are evidencing saving faith because you are like the believing prophets of old. If I were not Christ, I would not be treated this way. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says on the corresponding verse in Matthew, by thus persecuting you, the world is just telling you that you do not belong to it, that you are going to heaven. When you are persecuted by a world that hates you and hates the gospel, you are simply being told by the world We see that you're the genuine article. We see that you're the real thing. We see Christ in your life. Well, fourthly, why does God permit persecution? And here we could range through the scriptures, but let me simply mention these reasons. The Lord in his providence brings persecution into our lives for which sinful men are fully responsible, and yet God sovereignly brings it. No mistake about that. He brings it in order to sift the church, to sift us. Watson the Puritan said to his congregation, suffering times are sifting times. And then he said, hypocrites cannot sail in stormy weather. 
And so when persecution comes, it helps to sift out those who are truly believers in Jesus and those who are not. I ask you this, in America, if it suddenly became illegal for us to gather for worship and the church were persecuted, how many in our churches today would do all that they could to continue to gather for worship? How many of our elders would continue to gather members of our flock and you would come to those gatherings? How many ministers would continue to preach the gospel even if it were illegal? And for those gathering to be entertained on Sunday, what would it matter anyway? What's the loss? You can get entertainment anywhere. But for those who long for the bread of life and obedience to Christ, it matters. It would matter a great deal. And so we are sifted. We are sifted in our hearts. We are sifted in our church membership when persecution comes to the church. But also the Lord brings it, a concomitant theme, in order to purify us. God is not concerned with our comfort. That's not his primary concern. God is not so concerned with our comfort, but he is deeply concerned for our sanctification. He is deeply concerned with our conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. On various levels, the Lord purges out love for the world when he brings persecution into the church. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, Persecution helps us to see what's really important in life. It helps us to cling to those things that are eternal and not those things that are fading and pass away so that we learn to appreciate the things that God gives us but to hold on to them loosely. It teaches us neither world retreat nor world absorption. Persecution helps remove love of human approval for which so many lust and persecution makes us like Christ. Ultimately, as with all the suffering endured by God's people until the day of judgment, we do so for God's glory, even though we may not see why. How important it is for us to remember that as Christians in this world, we walk by faith and not by sight. That much will come into our worlds for which we have no explanation, that we can say, Lord, I believe you and I hold to what your word says, but I do not understand why this is coming into my life or into the lives of God's people or into the lives of those I love or into the life of your church. And so it is important to remember that we walk by faith and not by sight, and that does not put you at a disadvantage because you have the promises of God upon which to cling while the world has nothing but a spider's web. We are hanging on to the very promises of God and the day will, be, will come in which we will have a deeper and fuller understanding and we will be completely satisfied. Let me give you two quotations. One from Alfred Edersheim, the converted Jew. He was reformed in his theology. Edersheim said this, For God to explain a trial would be to destroy its purpose. 
calling forth simple faith and implicit obedience. Listen to it again. For God to explain a trial would be to destroy its purpose, calling forth simple faith and implicit obedience. That's the end of the book of Job. Having endured all that he endured, at the end of the book, he sees something of God's glory and the riches of his character and the wonder of his infinite nature. And he repents in, in sackcloth and ashes. And he puts dust upon his head. And essentially, he humbles himself under the mighty hand of God. And God says to him, in essence, at the end of the book, this, Job, you don't know why this has happened to you. You don't need to understand. It should be sufficient for you that I know. That's Edersheim's point. For God to explain a trial would be to destroy its purpose, calling forth simple faith and implicit obedience. I give you a second important quotation from Richard Gaffin, reflecting Paul. Until Jesus comes, his resurrection glory in the church is a matter of strength made perfect in suffering. Not without suffering, but in suffering. Until Jesus comes again, the church will always be the church under the cross. The persecution of Christians in the world is at an all-time high. There has never been a time in the history of the church in which persecution has been so thorough and so widespread as it is in our day. Not during the reign of Domitian. Not during the reign of Nero. Now, the age in which you and I live. And I used to ask why the church today in our country is not persecuted. But I don't ask that question anymore. I now wonder how deep the persecution will go and if we are ready for it. Now, I do not invite persecution. But maybe the greatest blessing for Covenant Presbyterian Church would be because of Christ, because of bearing witness to Christ, maybe the greatest blessing upon Covenant Presbyterian Church would be to become the most persecuted church in town. Hated, excluded, reviled, spurned as evil on account of the Son of Man. Indeed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God uses persecution to extend his gospel in the world. But if serious persecution came to the churches of America, my own assessment is that the churches would thin out very quickly. So pray that you will be faithful. Pray that your ministers will be faithful, come what may. One of the vows that your ministers take when we are ordained to the ministry in the Presbyterian Church of America is, do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? That's our vow. In any case, for members and ministers, the sufferings of Christ must be redrawn in the hearts of Christ's servants. There's no other way. We are in union with Christ. Christ condescended and came into this world in order to suffer and bleed and die, and then he was exalted. 
and that is redrawn in the lives of his people. That V, utter humiliation, later exaltation. That is our calling, and it is a good thing, even though it is a hard thing. And it is something about which to rejoice, even though it hurts. Matthew 10.32, Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So listen up. We prepare as God's professing people. We prepare for such hardships now. Do you hear? We prepare for such hardships now by being faithful. So, for example, if we are undisciplined about public worship now, if we are undisciplined about following the Lord now, well, you cannot expect all of a sudden to be faithful when times of persecution arise, can you? Can you? Boy, I wish I could stress that more. So let me just say it again. We prepare for hardships in life, being faithful in hardships, and even persecution by being faithful today. Well, look fifthly at the reward of suffering persecution. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You may say, well, it doesn't feel like a blessing to me. Well, it is because Christ says so. And in verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. You see the reward. Reward is the reward of grace. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. But he graciously promises it to his people. Turn right here in Luke's gospel to the 17th chapter. Luke 17. Let me remind you of a little parable to which we've yet, we are yet to come. But in chapter 17 of Luke, beginning at verse 7. The Lord Jesus taught this, Luke 17, 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So when you are faithful as a Christian, there is a reward that is promised to you, but not because we've earned it by our faithfulness, but because the Lord is gracious to us when we have simply done our duty.
So there's a present blessing in the beatitude in Luke 6. Blessed are you, you're blessed now. And there's a future blessing, your reward is great in heaven. The reward will be far, far greater than the sacrifice that is made in times of persecution, even if that means giving your life. So let this lift up your heart to heaven, whether it's in time of persecution or other sorts of trials. But sixthly, will you notice, woe to the wicked in verse 26. The corresponding woe to the beatitude in verse 26 is this. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Hendrickson says very wisely, what Jesus is saying amounts to is this. When everybody speaks well of you, it must be that you are a deceitful, servile flatterer. He points to that backslapper, Absalom. He was insincere, seeking his own glory in order to undermine David's throne. But the reality, the reality of that kind of thing, when it becomes popular in the church, leadership not by the word, but by charismatic personality, for example, is that Jeremiah says, my people love to have it so. Hmm. Let's go to another passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And again, as the Apostle Paul instructs his young protege, he would remind him of his call to preach the word and what the world will be like as he preaches the gospel. There are many places in Paul like this, but this is especially helpful this morning. 2 Timothy 4, the first five verses. Paul says to the young preacher Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to, who is to, to judge the living and the dead, <clears throat> and by his appearing and his kingdom, <clears throat> preach the word, <clears throat> be ready in season and out of season, <clears throat> when your voice works and when it doesn't. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And my understanding of this is that over time until Christ comes again, this sort of thing will become deeper and deeper and more and more complex. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And Hendrickson says of preachers like that, you are digging your own grave. And so are the people that listen to them. By the way, J.C. Ryle, that great man of God, 
the state of life which our Lord blesses, the world cordially dislikes. The people to whom our Lord says, woe unto you, are the very people whom the world admires, praises, and imitates. This is an awful fact. It ought to raise within us great searchings of heart. You note takers, maybe this is seven. Maybe you should call it a couple of final things. The reason the church, the reason Christians are persecuted is because we're different. That is to say, because we're becoming like our Father in heaven. We're growing and maturing in grace and becoming more like Jesus. Verse 22, we are persecuted on account of the Son of Man. You see, the Bible says sinners are God-haters. Outside of Christ, every human being hates God. Not their idea of God, but the God of the Bible. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. Take, for example, the rise of atheism today. G.H. Kirsten, Dutch Reformed theologian, said, An atheist is not born but made. Wantonly going against the voice of conscience, he denies the existence of God. Inwardly, he knows better but he wishes that there were no God so that he could walk in the paths of sin undisturbed. Which is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 1. So just as when Cain slew Abel, it was out of hatred, so persecution of Christians is because they do not like our Christ. The world takes notice of our faith in Christ and our conduct that reflects our relationship with him and is condemned by it. Cannot tolerate us and persecution follows. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, maybe it would be good for us to turn. We've turned to a lot of passages this morning. Let's turn to that one, Matthew 10. Let these words challenge our hearts. Starting in verse... Well, let's just go back. Let's go back to 29. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows, the overarching providence of God. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This means that the Christian life is much different than what many professing Christians think. It's not your best life now. It means, Luke 14, 28, that we must count the cost. It means that I have no right to live for myself, but only for Christ. Again, J.C. Ryle, a cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Did you ever stop to think that the Lord uses persecution to save his elect that have not yet come to faith in Christ? Church history is replete with examples. Let me give you just one. In 1662, 2,000 ministers of the Church of England were ejected from the Church of England. The Church of England, in my view, has never gotten over that loss. These were Puritan ministers, Church of England ministers who preached the gospel. And for conscience sake, because they could not submit to certain things being required of them, they left. There were some men whose consciences, fine men, whose consciences allowed them to remain. But most of these men thought for conscience sake they needed to leave. And so it became illegal for them to preach the gospel and to have public gatherings And their positions were filled by men, most of whom did not believe the gospel. And then in 1665, there was the great plague in London. And again in 1666, the great fire of London. It was illegal, remember, for Puritan ministers to take their former charges. But those who had replaced them when the plague came to London fled. They were just hirelings. And they fled and they left their congregations without ministers. Churches were flung wide open, but there were no ministers to fill the pulpits. The hirelings had fled. What happened? The despised, persecuted, illegal Puritan ministers stepped up, came and filled the pulpits and preached the gospel. Every sermon might have been their last because of the plague. Graves were being filled daily. Boner, in describing it, says in his account, Oh, how they preached. The graves seemed to lie open at the foot of the pulpit with dust in her bosom. And the churches were so filled with people coming to hear the word of God because they knew they might be entering into eternity before the night was out. The churches were so filled with people that the ministers had to climb over the pews in order to get into the high pulpits of the London churches. The persecuted were the ones who had the credibility to enter the pulpit and preach. Those who had gone through suffering were the ones who had the credibility and the heart to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the lost and to the dying. Now, is not death the same? Is not eternity the same? Are not the needs of sinners today the same? And who knows, if you suffer as a Christian, 
keep Christ before you, whether that suffering is persecution suffering or not, if you suffer in a Christ-like way, who knows, the Lord may attract some lost person to himself through your life. So what can you do? What can you do when these things come into your lives and you cannot control them? Well, you know what's true. You know in whom you believe. And you're persuaded that he is able to keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. You know that Jesus died for you. You know he rose from the dead. What can you do? By the grace of God, you can live so that men see that you believe it. And you can take every opportunity to tell them so. You can be faithful. And you can be faithful because you know Christ already is the victor. And so are you in him. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.